You're tuned into an extra from Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In this new series, a supplement to our regular show, we'll feature discussions with thought leaders on What Every American Should Know, a project by the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. The program is tapping the American public and cultural leaders to build a crowdsourced national list of facts and references every American should know. The idea for the list came from a 1987 book called Cultural Literacy. It laid out 5,000 words and references that represented a sort of inside baseball language needed to be engaged in the U.S. Author Edie Hirsch saw major blowback, with critics calling the book racist and sexist, among other things. But it initiated a powerful conversation about common fluency in American life. Executive Director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program, Eric Liu, says Hirsch was partly right. Now, more than ever, a diversifying U.S. needs a shared base of knowledge. But he thinks a 21st century sense of civic and cultural literacy must be radically more inclusive than Hirsch's list. In today's show, Lou speaks with Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's a filmmaker, scholar, journalist, and cultural critic. He directs the Hutchins Center for African American Research at Harvard and hosts the popular PBS genealogy program, Finding Your Roots. Gates gives his top 10 list of references he thinks belong in a modern language and talks about American culture today. Here's Gates and Lou. It is great to uh, be in conversation with you. Thanks for conceiving of this idea. It's a brilliant idea. You know, you and I are literary scholars, and we remember the culture wars from the 1990s. And ironically, I don't think any of us thought in the year 2016 the culture wars would be manifesting themselves in the peculiar ways that they are, <laughs> both in the uh, educational system, but more especially in the political arena. Mm-hmm. So your timing is impeccable. One of the great projects that uh, you and your longtime collaborator, uh, Anthony Appiah, uh, uh, undertook uh, uh, what was called Encyclopedia Africana, um, mm-hmm. inspired in some ways by W.E.B. Du Bois's um, work and vision. And say a word about that project. I think of all of the projects that I've done, it's a bit like when someone says, do you have a favorite child? The answer, of course, is no. But I'm always deeply invested in each of the research projects and theoretical projects that I do. But doing the Africana Encyclopedia, I think, was a, a milestone in my career. And, and I would like to think of the development of the broader fields of both African and African-American studies. And it wasn't my idea at all. It, as you said, it was the idea of the greatest black intellectual of all time, W.E.B. Du Bois, who woke up one day in 1909, seemingly out of the blue, and announced that the most efficacious way to fight anti-black racism would be the editing of a comprehensive encyclopedia about the entire black world. And I think, in retrospect, <clears throat> though Du Bois never said this, I think he got the idea from the Encyclopedia Judaica, mm-hmm which had been published shortly before. And, you know, you didn't have to be a rocket science to make this connection. Du Bois later said that the position that I'm about to outline of his was naive, but he thought at that time that racism was a function of ignorance. What would I say? A storehouse of stereotypes about black people Hmm. had been in circulation to accompany the slave trade, uh, particularly hitting its stride in the 19th century, uh, before the Civil War, the cotton era between 1830 and 1860. And then again, curiously enough, in the age of Jim Crow, which, as you know, begins in 1890. Mm -hmm. 
And these stereotypes were generated to reinforce notions that black people in the first instance were fit by nature, by biology, to be slaves and weren't equal to Europeans. And in the second instance, after 1890, um, these stereotypes were called upon to, in effect, put the genie back in the bottle. What do I mean by that? Well, the period of Reconstruction between 1866 and 1876 had shown that black men, and, and only men could vote, that black men could vote and and be citizens, mm-hmm. um, partake of citizen, civic culture, and even um, serve as congressmen and uh, as senators. <clears throat> and all that ended abruptly, um, initially, uh, in, in terms of legality, in um, 1876 with the hayes and Compromise, and then it played itself out very slowly through state statutes, starting with the Separate Car Act in Louisiana in 1890, which, so that it was the invention of Jim Crow. Now, so you, you knew that black men were equal to white men, that they could vote, and that they were human beings, they could serve in the, even in the United States Senate and Congress. So how do you put that genie back in the, in the bottle? You circulate zillion images mm-hmm. um, of black people deracinated as lustful, rapists, etc., etc., and you, um, you, in effect, you do what my dear colleague, who passed all too soon, Barbara Johnson, um, defined as stereotyping. She said a stereotype, memorably, is an already read text, an already read text. Mm. And by that I mean that when a white middle-class person saw a black person or a white working-class person saw a black person, they would not see them as you would see me, but they would see them through the filter of all these stereotypes, superimposed on my being, superimposed on my face, on my physical and metaphysical nature. Mm-hmm. And Du Bois thought, okay, it's not their fault, they're in the grip of these stereotypes, which were called upon to justify an economic order that exploited Africans initially in the slave trade and is being called upon again to justify Jim Crow. So I'm going to edit this encyclopedia, and it's going to have the same function as Voltaire's Encyclopedia did in the Encyclopedia in the 18th century and the Encyclopedia Britannica. The 18th century was the era of encyclopedias, but of course, no, there was no Encyclopedia Africana in the 18th century. So that was his idea. And Du Bois tried all his life, literally, to get this project off the ground. And Du Bois dies... He never published any volumes. He just said his outline. I have a copy of his outline. Du Bois died on the eve of the great march on Washington. Hmm. You know, you talk about poetry. Hmm. He died, goes to bed the night before Martin Luther King gives the greatest speech of the 20th century. And he never wakes up. And the next day, Roy Wilkins announces from the stage at the mall in Washington that the great Du Bois had passed in his sleep. Well, you fast forward to your own work, the work that you've undertaken, not only with the encyclopedia itself, but just in general. You know, you are both placing and answering the call now uh, to, to um, you know, expand this notion of what are the texts. And, and when you quote that notion of a stereotype as a text already read, you know, that, that is so true in the ways that people dehumanize one another and, and you know, the, the post uh, 
Reconstruction, they re-dehumanized African Americans. Um, but it's also true in a literal sense. And, you know, the, 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 the original notion of cultural literacy that uh, E.D. Hirsch wrote about in the late 80s uh, talked about schema and patterns of background knowledge and uh, chunks of concepts and facts and storylines and, yeah, maybe stereotype that people had in their heads that allowed them to make mental and uh, uh, emotional shortcuts to make sense of uh, the, the world and make sense of uh, America. And so when you talk about being a canon maker, not a canon breaker, um, what are the schema that you feel like you want to make sure that Americans today uh, have? What are the texts that you want to make sure that uh, um, uh, Americans today really have some command of in order to truly, in that uh, broad 360-degree way, uh, enables them to see uh, our country? Well, my goal... Eric, really, is to, for as much as I love and admire Carter G. Woodson's concept of Negro History Week, which became Negro History Month and then Black History Month, and which we celebrate dutifully every year, I want every day in the, in the school curriculum to be Black History Month, mm. meaning I want um, the presence of the uh, African-American in this country, um, both in history classes, social studies classes, civics classes and literature classes, I want that to be embedded, intertwined into the larger narrative of, of America so that it's not separate. It's not like um, Negro Day, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or Negro History Month. It is a, a part of the, 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 um, the weave of, of American culture. Mm-hmm. So I want, as a professor of African and African American studies, not trying to put myself out of business, but I want American literature, American history to be thoroughly integrated, and then I want deeper specialty courses in the African-American experience, which is why um, when I heard about Du Bois's idea of encyclopedia, when I was an undergraduate at Yale, man, even though I was pre-med, my mama, <laughs> God rest her soul, wanted me to, both her sons to be doctors. <laughs> I decided I was going to do it, and when I went to Cambridge, I met Anthony Appiah, who was an undergraduate at Clare College at Cambridge, and Wally Shoyinka, whom, as you know, would, that was mm-hmm. 1973, 13 years later, would go on and get the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he was my professor. I was his only student. And in October, the night we met, we um, ate at an Indian restaurant, and we drank all this wine because <laughs> Shoyinka's an, en- an enophile. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... I told them about the voice of Encyclopedia Africana, and we made a drunken pledge that night that we would edit this encyclopedia. Wow. And that's what we did in 1999, as Encarta Africana with Bill Gates and Microsoft, and um, as a you know as a huge volume, as you know, which has been taken over by Oxford Press. And I cite that to say, yeah, I want that encyclopedia on the shelf, and I'm if I walk over here from my kitchen into my study, as I'm doing right now, I can look at it mm-hmm. and look at its different editions. But I also want that information integrated into the Encyclopedia Britannica or Wikipedia. So my list, my list is very much oriented toward what Americans should know and don't know about African American culture. So mm-hmm. here's my list. All right. Okay. First, Lincoln's second inaugural. Lincoln's second inaugural is so important because he talks about the moral, psychic, and even the death toll, really, of slavery. The, the toll that the Almighty has exacted on America for the sins of slavery. Mm-hmm. And he announces that, you know, the war really is about 
has been about abolishing slavery. It's a fundamental evil. It shouldn't have been part of the Constitution. And, and I mean, it's brilliant. So Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, Frederick Douglass says, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the great pieces of oratory in the 19th century. Uh, in the black folk tradition, two sets of uh, oral tales shine in the Titanic and the signifying monkey. Now, as you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the latter is, uh, is the title of my... Of your, uh, what, your breakout work. Uh, exactly, <laughs> your breakout work. My breakout work. But it's based on the oral tradition. And What was the first one on the Titanic? Oh, Shine and the Titanic. Uh-huh. And it's about the fact, it was a, a myth, an urban legend, we'd say today, that Jack Johnson, the great boxer, had tried to get on the Titanic, which was owned by the White Star Line, the Cunard family line, and that he'd been told no, that no Negro could get on the Titanic. And, of course, (laughs) the Titanic sinks. But it turns out there was one black person, this is the urban legend, one black person who not only was on the Titanic, he was working, you know, shoveling coal into the, the boiler far below deck, and he's the only person who survives. <laughs> and by the time the Titanic sinks, he's having a beer in Harlem, and he swims all the way from the middle of the ocean. And, the, and it's structured around these verses, like Mrs. Vanderbilt is floating on an ice floe, and Shine is swimming by, and she says, um, Shine, Shine, save poor me, I'll make you rich as a Shine can be. And Shine responds, uh, money's good, but money, money don't last. Shine's going to save his own black ass. <laughs> and the refrain says, and Shine swam on. And what's funny about this is that, of course, black people, uh, the racist stereotype goes, can't swim. Yeah. And so Shine not only can swim, he's the greatest swimmer in history because he can swim from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> all the way to New York Harbor and then uh, get up to Harlem before the Titanic sinks. This and the signifying monkey are examples of Black genius, anonymous black genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spirituals, mm-hmm. the, the sacred music created by the slaves, which Du Bois in his great book, The Souls of Black Folk, calls the Sorrow Songs. Every American should know those. Well, and, every chapter of uh, The Souls of Black Folk opened with a, opens with a line of a, uh, a sorrow song. That's right, a line of a sorrow song coupled with... Um, a piece of uh, Anglo-American poetry, mm-hmm. canonical poetry. So mm-hmm. he was bicultural even in, in, in this great book, which I'll talk about in a minute. But along with the spirituals, a gospel song called Precious Lord by Thomas Dorsey. And um, it was Martin Luther King's, one of his favorite hymns, and it's one of mine. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. Oh, my God, it's beautiful. <laughs> the greatest book written by a person of uh, African descent, in my opinion, Souls of Black Folk, to which uh, we've been alluding, published in 1903, in which, um, as a critic, Robert Septo uh, wrote many, many years ago, showed Du Bois transforming data into metaphor. Hmm. And he really described the zeitgeist in 1903, the spirit of black people, which hadn't been quite uh, clothed in language in that way, articulating, um, Hmm. you know, the spiritual essence of the Black American culture in a, in a g- genius. You know, in the colloquial, we just say Du Bois was tripping. You know, when you read, you read this this prose, but it's very lyrical. It's very poetic prose. Martin Luther King. Uh, I think everyone you ask will say, "I have a dream," but I would say um, 
the speech he gave the night before he died, A Bid to the Mountaintop, mm-hmm. is just as important to me mm-hmm. uh, and just as inspiring as uh, I Have a Dream. I think that people should see the Muhammad Ali-George Foreman fight <laughs> from start to finish, the rumble <laughs> in the jungle. This when, when, when he invents the rope-a-dope. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, you know, the only way you could beat George Foreman in all that heat in Kinshasa was to lean against the ropes and let Foreman beat him yep. for, I think, seven rounds. And then he com- comes out like like back from the dead and like whoops George Foreman. And, uh, Which is about you know, as great a metaphor as, as you can find for a lot of what we're talking about. The greatest metaphors you can find. And, and, and he even names his fights. Remember, there was the thriller in the Manila with uh, yep. Joe Frazier and the rumble in the jungle with George Foreman. And then... Um, I think all Americans should be familiar with the Declaration and the Constitution, but the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which are called the Reconstruction Amendments, mm-hmm. abolishing slavery. Most people don't realize that slavery could not be abolished by Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. That Emancipation Proclamation was a war act that only applied to the nations at war with the United States. And even Lincoln uh, was dubious about its legality. So slavery was not abolished until December 1865, after Lincoln was dead, when the final uh, necessary state ratified the 13th Amendment, and then um, the 14th Amendment, which uh, made black people citizens, and the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote. They're very important to understand that this all happened after the end of the Civil War, Mm -hmm. as effects of the Civil War, and that... It wasn't just a good man woke up one day and sat down and wrote a short document that freed people. It was a considered collaborative act, and it took an act of state legislatures to to ratify. And the the final thing would be, of course, the the constitutional amendment that gave women the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, My students are always shocked to realize that women couldn't vote, that black men could vote before white women, Mm -hmm. and that... Um, that would be on on um, my list. And I think one more thing would be Stonewall. Mm. When gay people, gay men, decided to fight back against their oppressors. And I think that that's a moment that everyone should celebrate and, and understand, that when people rise up, it's just as important as the Montgomery bus boycott in its way. So that's my list, good brother. Well, you know, one of the things that is beautiful about this list is um, integration, integrating African-American history into American history, understanding that there is no American history without African-American history. Well, I'm really grateful to you for uh, joining us. (laughs) Thanks so much, brother. You have a good day. Okay, you too. Thank you. That was Eric Liu speaking with Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Liu directs the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Gates is an award-winning filmmaker, scholar, journalist, and cultural critic. In next week's Extra, we'll hear from Colin Woodard, an award-winning journalist and author. His book, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America, is about politics, history, and culture in the United States. Submit your top 10 list on the website, whateveryamericanshouldknow.org. Our regular Aspen Ideas To Go episodes aren't going away. A new show featuring compelling conversations on stage at Aspen Institute events will drop next week. Find out more about the podcast at aspenideas.org. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.